I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. I'm Angelie Preston. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity, and the common concerns of Buffalo's East Side and beyond. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. Welcome to What's Next. On December 22nd, the county legislature passed the Erie County Language Access Act. This has a lot of moving parts to it, and here to help us kind of guide through some of the understanding of it is Jennifer Rizzo-Choi, Executive Director of the International Institute of Buffalo. Jennifer, thanks for joining us again. So good to be here. Thanks, Jay. So this is a nice victory of sorts for the International Institute? I think this is terrific to see that our local government is saying, yes, we want to make sure that we communicate in multiple languages with our citizenry, and we are going to put it into law so that way we make sure that it happens. Okay, so we've got a law. Let's get into what it might mean. I think its documents are going to be available for sign language. Well, I don't necessarily need that for sign, but six of the The top six languages in the county, is that right? Yep, ASL and the top six non-English languages, although they have not specified which ones those are yet. And they're talking about timely, accurate, and equitable access to information that would include vital documents, emergency information, and public service announcements. I'm curious right off the bat, though. So the top six non-English languages, Spanish has to be one of them, obviously. Beyond that, though, any thoughts what those might be? I mean, I'm glad that they're deciding that this is a regional decision because the top six languages here are different than New York City or or even New York statewide. I would think Spanish would be probably one of those top languages, probably French because we have a lot of African populations, Burmese or some of those dialects. But beyond that, I don't know. It'll be interesting to find out because Buffalo Public Schools' top 10 languages differs from what the city council has decided as its top seven languages. So for instance, Buffalo Common Council, when they adopted their resolution for language access, they had Spanish, Arabic, Karen, which is a Burmese dialect, Somali, Burmese, Swahili, and Bengali. Those were their top seven. So this goes into how do you decide which groups you're going to go with? Are you going to go with schools? That's like young kids growing up, right? So that's a different language than maybe people who are already here and settled. So they're going to have to figure that out. But still, it's a huge start to say we're going to do stuff that's not in English. Right. And another part of this, I think, that generated this concept was all the uh, unfortunate tragedies that occurred last Christmas during the blizzard, that that there wasn't enough information getting to certain people who just obviously needed it and more than likely led to uh, deaths during that blizzard, correct? That's true. There was a very tragic story of a refugee who died because he went out, as it seems, into the snow, not knowing how severe it was. And he got confused, couldn't see where he was going. And he had gone out to get food for somebody in his building, not even for himself. And so while we do try to tell our clients and we educate them about the the winter and the snow in Buffalo, you don't really know what that's like until you experience a blizzard. When you're coming from a climate in a country that doesn't have that kind of weather activity, it's hard to really convey how severe it can be and how dangerous it can be. And so I don't know if the information reached him beforehand, but it's important because all of our 
media and news stations, they're communicating in English. Right. You know, our newspapers, et cetera. There are some community and ethnic newsletters and things, but they're not daily. Those are like monthly or things like that. So to get emergency information out to people quickly, that's where it's needed. And I think it's our government's responsibility to make sure that goes in multiple languages. So the devil is in the details in this particular case, and in most cases, of course, especially when it comes to new laws that are passed. In essence, what was passed on December 22nd was a mandate of sorts, but there's not a lot of specifics involved, right? There's a lot that has to come to make this all a reality. How, as you understand it, will that proceed? Right. So the devil is in the details, right? So you're right. It was sort of a mandate that this is something they want to do. We talked about the things that they envision that the access to information will be including, which is the vital documents, emergency information, and public service announcements. What they are requiring is that all county agencies come up with a plan for how they're going to provide the language access services. And that plan should be updated every other year. And then they're also going to be requiring a uniform training program on language access policies and procedures. So at this point, they're starting processes, right, and systems, but the devil is in the details. They need to figure out which languages, and then they have to, from there, figure out what things they want to communicate out. We have a little short list of emergency information, vital documents. Well, which documents have we decided are important? Are they birth certificate forms, marriage licenses, your vehicle registration? Is that going to go into six languages? They need to figure that out because then from there, a big part of this is how are they going to pay for this? They need to budget for that. And also, if I'm not mistaken, there was, what, an advisory committee or a committee that is going to be formed of, of some regard that will help formulate all of this? Yes. The advisory board, they have said, would be comprised of community leaders and county officials. So the county executive, the county clerk, the sheriff or designees of those agencies, plus four community members that are appointed by the county executive and confirmed by the legislature. And so that committee apparently will re-up every two years or they will relook at it every two years. And they're asking that committee then to take a look at U.S. census data and also school population data, which makes sense because then we could see who's here recently. And they also need to be considering information from local interpreters and refugee resettlement agencies like the International Institute of Buffalo. Provisions of the law would also accommodate American Sign Language interpretation on real-time captioning and transcription services for those who are deaf or hard of hearing. And this committee needs to then determine which documents are important enough to be translated into six languages. And as of right now, the International Institute is not necessarily part of this process? Not yet. I I hope to be for sure. Or I hope that one of our sister agencies would be because we certainly have a handle on not just who's here now, but who's coming in. Right. We know a year in advance, two years in advance, because we work with our national partners on the refugee pipeline and we know what populations are coming in. So while I can't give you specifics of 300 Burmese speakers are coming next year, I have a sense of which populations are coming in, what numbers we're going to be accepting, what numbers our sister agencies are going to be accepting in and what that's going to mean and look like for Buffalo. Uh, Can you share any of that uh, information right now or is it just a little too vague to perhaps uh, give out right at this Sure. Moment. I mean, for 2024, which we're already in that fiscal year because it starts October 1 because we go on the federal calendar, I anticipate that there be about 1,200 to 1,500 refugees arriving this year between the four agencies in town. And that's based on the numbers that we have to give to our national agencies, which are requested by the State Department. So that's the quote pipeline, right? The U.S. Refugee Admissions Program brings people in and they ask every year how many people can your community support and possibly due to 
upcoming political changes or election cycles, we were asked for the first time ever to provide anticipated numbers for 24 and 25. Okay. Usually we just do the year in advance. So I don't know if the 25 numbers have been accepted yet. I've given you the 24 numbers. I think it's going to be a big year because the Biden administration has really now tried to resource that pipeline and build it up and get higher to letting in the ceiling level of refugees that he had pledged when he first got into office. And it wasn't that long ago that you were with us, Jennifer. We had a nice discussion about all things refugees to a certain extent. What was the number you quoted to me at that time, the number of people who are considered refugees right now in the world? Oh, in the world? Oh, it's, I mean, the United Nations keeps account of that. And there's over 40 million refugees identified worldwide that are signed up with the United Nations. That's just refugees. There's actually a higher number that's internally displaced persons who are people who've had to flee conflict wherever they are, but they're not outside of their country and they're not signed up as a refugee. But 40 million people is a huge number around the world. And that's only projected to grow, unfortunately, due to climate change and the erosion of shoreline. And just as a reminder... And I know every situation is probably a little bit different. What is life like for some of the refugees that are living wherever right now? What might be the conditions that they're living in? Life overseas, you mean, as they've left their homeland. A lot of people, if they're lucky, can get to a camp. If they're lucky, they can get to a camp. Yeah, if they're lucky, they can get to a camp. I would say lucky because the camp means that there's some structure there, although the life isn't great there. But the UN is running it. They're able to provide food rations daily. Some of the camps run education programs. There is medical services. Basic medical aid is rendered there. And you're provided with like plumbing and sanitation and the ability to live in hopefully some way, although it is not a great place to live for years. Um, Depending on where the camp is located, the weather conditions can be pretty brutal. But the UN has a budget and can at least try to provide some structure. If you are not able to make it to a camp, which is really possible because you may not be able to go over like the land border or get through the conflict, you may have to leave and go around it, right? Then you're fending for yourself. You know, then you're sleeping out on the streets. You're relying on the charity of anybody that you've just met. Some people, if they're able to bring money with them, are able to get to a neighboring country. Like there's a lot of Africans that end up in South Africa. So like Congolese, for instance, will get all the way down to South Africa and they're able to get an apartment, but it won't be in a great part of the city and it'll be rough and and they may struggle with finding employment. So everyone that I talk to has a different journey in some ways. If you end up in a camp, you're not going to be working. You're just going to be sitting and waiting. And that's hard. If you end up in another city, in another country, you may get to the place where you can get a job. But it's so hard to determine day to day if you're going to survive because so many things are out of your control. And all of it is in a waiting game because you're waiting on the UN to call you and tell you if you've been accepted for resettlement in a country like the U.S., Australia, Canada, Europe, et cetera. We're talking with uh, Jennifer Rizzo-Choi, Executive Director of the International Institute of Buffalo, uh, here talking about uh, the Erie County Language Access Act uh, that mandates that uh, department-specific plans, practices, and trainings are made available in the top six languages used by community members here in Erie County, including American Sign Language. Let's get back to maybe some of those documents and practices. And we're, we're maybe speculating a little bit here, but you've got a good feel for what people need. Your agency knows you've been working with people coming to Western New York for years now. Uh, what might be some of the things that might be the best practice? We'll, we'll try to allow it to grow in its own organic way here, but uh, some of your thoughts on that. Well, I think they need to look at the different list of county agencies and figure out which ones have walk-in traffic and think through 
how they can make it so that way if somebody is coming in, they have the interpreter there. So whether that's through like a phone line or they have maybe they set up days per month, like it's Burmese day at the DMV, at the Parks and Rec Department or whatever, and then they line up and have an interpreter ready so someone can walk in and actually transact. For refugees, it's a lot harder to do business on the phone, especially if the person they're speaking to on the other end is only speaking English. It's easier when you're talking to somebody, you're trying to navigate that language barrier. If you could see them through their body language, you can kind of understand things. You can write some things, right? So language access has to be more than, well, I put up a sign of <laughs> like the basic rules here and it's in six languages. And it said Happy New Year, right? Yeah. right. Yeah. Right. It's got to be more languages. than that, right? right? Sure. Um, I mean, 20% of the people born in Buffalo, their first language is something other than English. So 20% of current Buffalonians, I should say, wow. they're speaking something other than English. 11% of people in Erie County speak a language other than English at home. So that's a significant number of people that aren't able to transact in English. So this is more than I've just got a form that I've translated into six languages and here you go, right? The person that's receiving the form from you, let, let's say it's registering a birth or registering your first house or a deed or getting the paperwork for your car registration, right? Having somebody who can then answer your questions, it's got to be beyond just that translated document, right? So how are we going to do that? The person's there in your office at that moment and you can't talk to them because you don't speak Arabic, so is there a line, a phone line you can call? Is there a way to stream somebody in by video? Is there a way to give you a sign and say, okay, come back every Monday of the month at 10 a.m. We have Arabic speakers. Thinking through that is how you make something accessible to somebody. It's more than just um, the basic effort of saying, oh, I translated into six languages. Here you go. If I'm not mistaken, your agency will help out people when it comes to getting their, their licenses? Right. So all the refugees that come here need to be papered in America, right? And so that's part of the core resettlement services that we provide. I should also add that all refugees who come in through the U.S. refugee admissions process are fully vetted. They've gone through security clearances, medical screenings, et cetera, to get here. And so when they're here on refugee status, they get assigned a caseworker from the International Institute of Buffalo who helps them begin their life. One of the classic things that we do is we do a trip down to the DMV. And even though no one's going to be driving a car anytime soon, they still need a photo ID. Oftentimes when they're coming from wherever they fled, they didn't have that. They didn't have their passport. People who've become a refugee have been persecuted usually by their home country, by their home government. Sometimes they denied them basic things like a passport. Wow. I've had... Uh, it's not uncommon for me to meet clients who had babies who don't have birth certificates because the government of the country where their baby was born refused to acknowledge or recognize the child. And so they didn't issue them a birth document. So instead, there might be something that a church issued or something that they recorded in like the family Bible or, or Quran, right? Something that they wrote down, but there's nothing official about that kid. So it's a big deal for a refugee to get a photo ID from New York State that says that they belong here, Right. So that's very important for them to go down and make sure it is right. So Another, there'll be an interpreter with them when they go to the DMV. We send one of our case managers and we always book an interpreter and we do that paperwork there so we can get through the process of the taking of the photo and all the paperwork being right. We want to make sure that their name is spelled correctly and that it matches whatever other documents that they have because this becomes a problem later in life if you know they have other documents and it conflicts because their name was written in Cyrillic or some other alphabet. And how does that translate into the English alphabet, which is how it gets printed on a document here? 
It is interesting also, this is just kind of one of those historical asides, that I think the, some of the worst spellers in the history of America were at Ellis Island uh, bringing when folks were showing up here because I think a lot of us can look back to our family heritage and find misspellings on documents that came through there. Yep. So it is interesting. Short names. Short names, yes. Short names. Change names, all of that. And right. That. I think that happened to my family too. I know. And then those, if those documents, I requested them a long time ago from the National Archives for my grandpa. And, you know, it's like all this scribble and you can barely tell and... And I'm sure the person who was handwriting it all got tired and was like, well, you're not Rizzolini. You're just Rizzo. You know? <laughs> so that's how we got Jennifer Rizzo Choi. I see. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. But uh, to that, though, I'm, I'm curious about this element of this. It, it, it's going to be obviously nice to get these services to people who can utilize them for sure. Right. And that there will be It'll give them access to certain government services and things along those lines. I'm wondering, though, if there's not another part of this, that this helps to perhaps introduce and put out there that there are other languages, very common languages, here in Erie County and in the city of Buffalo, and what that means to maybe just the general attitudes for the rest of the county when it comes to maybe learning for the first time that, yeah, there's people that are speaking whichever language here in Erie County and quite a few of those individuals as well. I think that this will hopefully set the tone as you're talking about to, to signal to our other community members that you need to be able to interact with this population as well. And quite frankly, if you're a business, if you're selling a product, you're missing out on what, 20, 30% of your market if you're not communicating in those languages. I was recently at the Starbucks on Elmwood and I walked in and I noticed on the door they actually had a sign showing that they can transact in other languages. And I thought that was interesting. Wow. I haven't seen that at other Starbucks. So I don't know if something prompted that. But to me, walking in there, I was like, okay, well, it sounds like they're wanting to be welcoming, right? And I think that's important for our business leaders to look at and, and think about because, you know, today's arrival is going to be your future customer. I have a colleague of mine who's a lawyer, does a lot of real estate closings and things. And she did a couple of years ago a closing for a Burmese man who spoke decent English. But he then was so happy with her service that he referred her to many other community members. And now 30% of her closings that she does annually are from the Burmese population and another 30% are from Bengali speakers. So she became known as a trusted lawyer in that community, even though she's American, right? right? Born here. So to me, I said to her, I'm like, okay, well, let's take the next step. Let's translate your website. Let's make sure when they find you, when they Google you, when they hear about you as a as, you know, word of mouth today still is the most recommended way to find something, right. babysitter, lawyer, auto repair, right? That still trumps any marketing that can be done. Think about if your website, if the way to find you is in multiple languages, in those top six languages, I think a whole lot more traffic is going to walk in your door. I know we talked about this when you were here a few weeks back, but of the types of services that your agency offers, is that one of the services you can help with? We do. I would be so delighted if you would like to hire us. <laughs> <laughs> We've been running sort of a small business out of our nonprofit for decades now. And we can do interpretation in over 60 languages and we can do translation, which is the written document process and also over 60 languages. So it's a business. You can book us online. You can call us. We will quote you the document and can turn it around in two days. We can get an interpreter to you in 24 hours. It's a great thing because we're able to know the trends of the community and train people are coming in so that they get jobs, but it's also great because we can then help support the community that is trying to interact with these new populations. I know there are grade school students who are 
creating their own websites. That's something to me that looks like climbing Mount Everest just to, to have my own website or any kind of website. And then with the idea that then to translate it into another language sounds even more complicated, right? But not necessarily so. No, the translation part's easy. The really? web design part, you're on your own for. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you gave us a document, if you guys gave us your website, your landing page, and all the all the text from each page, we could turn that around to you in a couple of days in, in a bunch of different languages. And then for you on that side, you just have to work with the graphic design to have the click button so that way it goes into French, it goes into Spanish and Arabic. Really, it's just text. Whatever text you give us, we can turn around and translate back to you. The more complicated documents are actually birth certificates because those have to be formatted so that it's a mirror image. You're looking at the English language version next to sort of the boxed out of the Arabic version. So you could be like, oh, okay, this means city of nationality. Oh, this means, you know, name of father. Those ones are actually harder because there's layout involved. But straight text, and it's not just websites. It could be if you're hiring former refugees or immigrants, you might want to have your employee manual translated into different languages, onboarding documents, training materials, all different kinds of things that might be helpful, internal documents to your company, right, that would be helpful if you're hiring that language group. Are you finding more businesses that are Making that leap and saying, I could utilize the, this service. Are you seeing more businesses, more entities leaning toward that? That they're, they're seeing like you were saying. I mean, this, this is a significant market here of, of foreign language speakers in Erie County and in the city of Buffalo. We do see employers who've hired at least 10 refugees want to interact with us and hire us for interpretation to do trainings okay. as well as do some of those document translations. We also sort of get interesting one-offs where like a company in town bought like Korean software and the manual only came in Korean and they've hired <laughs> us to come and read it to them right. or interpret it uh, or translate it for them. So we get those types of things too. I think the county making this decision should hopefully start to open the doors to more possibilities with people realizing, wow, this is significant enough that the county thinks that they need to communicate in other languages. Here we are talking about 20% of Buffalo households speak a language other than English. Like, let's make sure that everyone is accessing your services, your products, and so that you are able to fully serve this community. We're uh, coming down to our final minutes here with uh, Jennifer Rizzo-Choi, Executive Director of the International Institute of Buffalo. It's interesting that the county went to this point to do this, of course. There are those who might just say, well, that's just something government does. There may be even skeptics who say, why did they bother doing that? I'm just putting that aside. That being stated, though, back to the idea of making this part of the community conversation, a real part of the community that we have refugees here we have people speaking different languages they're an important part of our local society how is that conversation going I think it's continuing as people start to see that Buffalo has really benefited from new arrivals, from increasing its population for the first time ever since the 50s. That was all attributed to the foreign-born, by the way, the 2020 census numbers. I think people are realizing that we've gained so much due to the fact that new arrivals have come here. I was recently at a forum hosted by the Buffalo News, and it was uh, focused on employment and jobs, and there are 38,000 open manufacturing positions in our region. 
38,000. And there were employers in that room and they wanted to know how many refugees are coming. They want to know the pipeline's growing. And it is. I think 1,500 this year, maybe 2,000, 3,000 the next year. As people come in, those are able-bodied people who want to work. They weren't able to work in their home country. And so looking at this and realizing that's a good thing. And it's actually a hallmark of who we were 100 years ago when people came here for a new start. That's how Buffalo became the great city. You know, let's just sort of glaze over the decline that we went through right, right, <laughs> in right. the mid-century. But we're back on a good trend upward, I think. And so that benefits us in economic development. But part of that is embracing diversity and being welcoming. And the easiest way to be welcoming is through language. I'm going to ask you a little bit of an opinion here, and you, I know you can handle it because I've talked to you before, but is that part of the conversation muted maybe a little too much, not necessarily locally, but maybe on a national basis? That I mean, use the word diversity, right? Diversity in this building, in this organization means everything. You use the word diversity in a common setting, and it might be something that people automatically jump to and see it as a buzzword that says, you're talking about something I don't agree with. I mean, I think that it can be polarizing depending on who you're talking to, but it's the way of the future. You know, we're all different. We're at this phase in time where we're recognizing our differences and that all those things make us stronger as a nation and as a community. And if you look at the history of Buffalo, like we talked about, Buffalo grew due to immigration waves in the 1910s and 20s and 30s. And it's growing again now due to the folks who are coming here. And that's only going to make us better. We're getting labor and skills and new food and positive people who are proud to be Buffalonian. So I hope that people can look at this as a positive thing. I think our government is, is supporting that it's a positive thing. And we'll see what the next year holds. I mean, there's a political election cycle that's about to start. I'm just going to continue to be optimistic that things will go well and not worry that we're going to take steps backward. We jumped into something here maybe a little bit more than we should have. Just a bit of a, a primer, perhaps. You, you mentioned the election coming up. <laughs> we know about that for sure here at WBFO. But there's going to be conversations, and this is going to be part of the conversation. Somebody who has the spirit, I guess, for lack of a better term, that hears what we're talking about here and says, yeah, yeah, yeah. But how can they best Put that into those conversations, assuming that there are actually going to be conversations in 2024 that aren't already predetermined what, who you're going to vote for. But this comes up, the idea of immigration and refugees. What are your thoughts to that person who wants to be part of that conversation? But well, I don't really have anything other than I just think this is good. <laughs> I often ask people when they start opining if they you know, could also stop and listen and learn. We all have to learn. I consider myself a line of lifelong learner. I certainly don't know everything about every topic. And so when people have preformed ideas, they come in and think, oh, well, someone's here just to take up money or get a free ride. And, you know, let's talk about that more and think about who's actually allowed to be here. Who's allowed to work here? What are all the rules that are in place? Why are people coming here? Let's talk through those conversations and learn more information. I think diversity, unfortunately, might have been polarized in the last few years. And that's unfortunate because diversity really means fairness. It really means that everybody is able to transact here and, and do what they need to do to live and survive, right? Whether that's in their own language or just that they're embraced for who they are, that they're not being attacked for the color of their skin or their gender identity. It's just fairness. And that's what America has been founded on. We were about being a place of liberty and make your own way and not have somebody tell you what to do and where to go. 
that's always been who we are. I just think we've gotten somewhat twisted up over this in the last several years. I try always when I have these conversations to talk about the economic impact and where Buffalo was versus where Buffalo is now. So when people are negative, I'm like, let's look at this and realize what has happened that's been positive. We have a pretty low unemployment rate here compared to other places, and that's because people are filling jobs. We have jobs that are open finally and businesses that want to expand here, and that's also a good thing. We have people who are moving here even that are just American because they want to have a more affordable lifestyle and not do that whole big city thing again. You know, We've been in a good place now, I think, for the last decade. And that's due to a lot of different influences. But negativity is only going to take us backward, not forward. Jennifer Rizzo Choi, uh, appreciate uh, your time and helping us through the Erie County Language Access Act. What are you going to be watching for next in terms of the development of this act? Well, I'm curious as to what they decide about that community advisory board. Mm -hmm. I would love to see the International Institute have a role in that or be involved in, in those decisions because I'm really curious to see what the top six languages are and also how they're going to figure out what pieces need to have interpretation absolutely in place, like what offices. Um, it ultimately, it's going to come down to what is their budget going to be? How are they going to pay for it? And making sure that there's a large enough budget that they can have an impact with this law, um, that it's not just sort of an aspiration, but it's actually delivering meaningful impact to the people who need to be able to access those services. Jennifer, uh, thanks as always for joining us. Thanks for having me. Jennifer Rizzo Choi is the executive director of the International Institute of Buffalo and she's with us on What's Next. More to come right after this. You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using what's next at wbfo.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And welcome back to What's Next. Today we're going to talk about the Erie County Language Access Act. It was passed on December 22nd by the Erie County Legislature, and in part it reads, it mandates that department-specific plans, practices, and trainings are made available in the top six, six languages used by community members in Erie County, including American Sign Language. And that brings us to our guest today. David Wantuck, Director of People, Inc.'s Deaf Access Services Program. David, thanks for joining us on What's Next. Thank you for having me here today. It is an absolute pleasure, for sure. Uh, let's talk about this, this particular piece of legislation. Why was it important to have American Sign Language be one of these uh, languages that, that were put in, in part of this legislation? Well, in our community... ASL is our primary language. Um, the deaf uh, community, even myself growing up, the first word, first uh, language I used was sign language. So grasping that in our culture, our community, understanding that what's going on, it's important to us. And at the same time, for years, it's usually the deaf community, hydrocarbon community who utilizes sign language are usually the last people to know what's going on because of access. And with this act, it really provides a bigger push, not just for um, myself as a person, not for just smaller parts of the community, but worldwide, just getting to understand ASL is utilized. It's not just a beautiful thing out there. It's a language we use daily. And with this act, 
making sure it should make the, the ADA law that was in existence for years a bigger thing for us to actually show that Erie County is making a push for more assets for the deaf and hard of hearing community and other who use different languages they need. I should have said this at the top of the program. Uh, David uh, can hear me courtesy of hearing aids, but he also has an interpreter who's right next to me, Shannon McGuire, uh, who is communicating with you right now. Tell me about this road to the level of communication that you are able to to provide to us today. Tell, tell us about your journey. Um, really taking a look back, it's the awareness of sign language had improved drastically. Coming from a deaf family, uh, my parents, they fought, they have gone through barriers of communication assets. I myself have gone through that in the 90s. Like we would have to get in, explain the importance of having an interpreter for places we go to. Now I don't have an interpreter, and we don't have interpreter everywhere we go. Now, if we have meeting, doctor's appointment, uh, anything that's very important for us to know what's going on in the outside world, news, having an interpreter there, and people starting to understand it's a law to have an ASL interpreter there to provide the communication after understanding awareness, the sense of relief after all those years of trying to fight advocate uh, for access. My mom and dad, really, they look back, and I don't think we would be here today with this kind of asset if it wasn't for community fighting for these assets. Do they wish they had that back then? Yes. But I think even today, anybody would keep doing what they need to do for the future to make things accessible. And having an interpreter there and just acting, requesting, and when a person respond, okay, we're open to it. Where can I, who do I reach out to? How do I get one? That question was not asked before. It was always said, no, we don't provide one. We can't get one. Now it's shifting over to how can I get one? Where do I get one? At the better response, the awareness is spreading out. And people think, um, it's really like that support there is making that bigger. And with a big organization like People Link in Western New York into Rochester, it's really providing that awareness even further. So we're grateful for it. I'm sure you know plenty of people, obviously, that are deaf, of course. Uh, but can you maybe take us through what types of challenges and maybe the sense of isolation that some people might feel and who might not feel that they have the agency to request an interpreter in certain situ situations? It's, I can't speak for everyone, but at the same time, that isolation feeling you mentioned, it is there. It may not be known in the very beginning. Um, there are families out there that have their child, they grow up, they're fine. They don't know ASL or they don't utilize ASL in the beginning. They pick it up later in life. I have uh, people, friends, who did not pick up until they were in their 20s. They didn't pick up ASL until they were in their 20s. Yeah. Um, do they look back and look at it as a bad thing? Not necessarily. It's just that mind, that sense of relief is, I have access to something now. Yes, they can't go back, but we can go forward. Now, 
we also look at it an agency like PeopleLink having that support, uh, being able to provide those services. It's we're trying to spread awareness to those who don't know about it. I'm not saying it's like, oh, you should have used it all way back when. No, it's we look at it the positive end. We have these resources. If you need more information about it, come to us, see us, talk to us. We'll explain how do you get those services, not just as a person who needs ASL uh, interpreter for any appointment, but as an employer or a place that's providing access for those who need that communication access. How can you get it? Uh, where do you go to get them? Who is really responsible for these? There are situations that we could go on and on right. uh, for this. If you can do the minimum, but you want to raise the bar even higher, higher, do that. Because in the long run, word gets out there. And people in the community will be like, this organization, this business, they, they really want to work with us. They want to make this place better. They'll go to you. So if your dentist's office, your doctor's office, your law firm, any, your workplace is a place that's providing access and they're open to providing access, the community will spread that word and say, hey, I like working there. I like this doctor. I suggest you go to them because they're open to providing whatever access you need. It's not just in ASL, but whatever other accessibility needs are out there. If you can, especially because the, the devil's in the details when it comes to this law. I mean, I know there's uh, a committee being formed and uh, they're going to work out all these different types of specifics involved in this law. But from a, a deaf person's perspective, what is not currently available for a person like that when it comes to Erie County government? It's emergency response mm. situation that arise. Keeping in mind, yes, um, deaf community is big. Uh, it may not be big, big, but it, it's out there. And interpreters, there's maybe a 10 to 1 ratio, maybe 20 to 1 ratio for 20 deaf community for one interpreter right now. We're at People Link, we have about 120 contract interpreters right now. But keep in mind, there's over five to 6,000 deaf people in Western New York. Okay. It's not a lot of interpreters out there. And when situation arises, you think about their hours, their time. People, they have lives, they have families. They're just expecting them to go out on the fly and uh, provide interpretation access and an emergency situation is hard. But what people think is trying to do is push and ensure that communication access for an emergency situation is there because all lives are out there are at risk at, during COVID, for one. The deaf community, really in the very beginning, when the government governor was giving out press release statements, we were the last one to get information. Hmm. Word will get out with the news, okay, we would try to like find somebody who can like explain it a little clearly. We knew there was a worldwide epidemic with that pandemic going out. We knew it was not safe, but how bad was it? We were trying to get clarification. We were trying to understand the changes because every day things were changing. Up more medical information, this was happening. When inter the interpreter was not there, relying on caption. Captioning itself is an auditory detection kind of thing for a lot of places. Though captioning is either turned on or they're not on. 
And if it's on, the words are not always accurate because it depends on how the person clarity of their voice is. I know for one myself, if I utilize audio caption, it's not accurate. So trying to make sure an interpreter is there also benefits those who are getting information right at hand. So if there was a snow closure, there was curfew happening in downtown Buffalo and everything shut down, how would that person not know how would that person know what's going on if there's no interpreter there during a press release saying there's curfew tonight at 9 o'clock and I end up going to downtown at 9.30? Is that fair for me to get into trouble on my record and there was no communication access there to begin with? Those are things we took in consideration when situation arise. Um, at the same time, it's not just emergency um, situation that comes up. Anything with health, anything with medical. I tell people that people in our community are usually the ones with most health issues. And it's not because of the deafness itself that affects health issues. It's information that we're not getting to prevent those health issues from happening. So you have information on the website that tells you how to have a better diet plan, tells you how to prevent heart attack, all of this stuff. There's great resources. But when I'm watching them and I'm trying to do something for my colleagues, my friends, my family, community members, like, oh, okay, this is happening, but I cannot understand how is it being affected, how to prevent it if there's no access to language with an ASL interpreter. And with that, that made the huge impact to us as a person in our health in the longer run. She sparked in my mind a conversation we had recently with an attorney. We brought up the fact that we were going to have you come down here and talk about uh, this Language Access Act from a, a, you know, for, to give us a, the deaf person's perspective. The, the attorney said to us that we should ask you, though, about what ha uh, situation, and you have a criminal justice background as well, we found out, and a sports management background as well. <laughs> but what uh, the situation where if a deaf person is handcuffed by police, yeah. they cannot sign. Talk about that situation. Maybe expand on the, the reality of what that is, uh, is like. A lot of people don't realize that um, deaf people can't hear a uh, tone of voice. We rely on visual body language. So it is, if I sign bigger, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm mad. I could be frustrated. I could be excited. I could be something. Sometimes we get the perspective of, okay, why is this person signing bigger? They're going to be angry. They're a threat. It's not necessarily the case. It's like when you get excited, your voice tone goes up. It's how we also react. But when we get handcuffed, when we're signing, we're trying to explain, we're pointing things. We're, uh, it's our way of expressing emotion in certain things, depending on situation. Yes, we understand safety first of, of the people around them. That's the biggest thing. But if uh, that person is not really causing any harm in the situation, we're we trying to encourage our officers to make sure they're handcuffed in the front because they can expressly explain 
whatever way possible. And if they need to start writing something, they need to start signing something. They justly informed, I need an interpreter by signing interpreter. Uh, at the same time, the officer will know if they're utilizing their hand more and they're not talking, they know they utilize ASL. While on the back, if they put their hand on the back, their body language will appear like they're struggling and resisting arrest, which is not necessarily the case because in our culture, our community, it's natural for us to move my, their hand. As um, right now, I'm talking to you and you don't use ASL, but I'm signing. Right. It should, in me, I should use my hand because it's who I am. It's my language. So that's why we're to avoid, yes, to be aware of safety. And if it's safe, have that person handcuffed in the front. With that, that provides that communication, understanding, awareness that this person utilized ASL and they need somebody to actually be there to support as an interpreter. From the best of your knowledge, and again, you can't speak for every situation in every police department, but is there a general feeling that law enforcement are embracing this concept when it comes to uh, dealing with the deaf community? There are. I, it really depends on the situation. I okay. can't speak for everyone sure. in the law enforcement world. I know over the years now it's, it's getting better and better. The awareness is there. I'm ta- I have friends who are officers. I, I do a lot of training with police officers, and they're always asking good questions. They're always like, how can we make sure we're helping you? And at the same time, acting like, I need to be safe too. And yes, that is the biggest, biggest thing. So it's a two-way street. Your safety and then at the same time, communication access. Um, over time, like, I mean, if you get pulled over, I think the biggest thing is we universally will tell you, we point to our ear, we shake our head. That is telling you, like, we can't hear you. So when we do training, and people are the training with a lot of different police departments, and we tell them, like, they're the visor cars with different pictures on them. So it kind of, like, shows them, like, what we did wrong at that moment. It goes from there. Pen and paper, yes, it's a short uh, solution for the time being. But if you're talking about long dialogue, you're taking us to the station and going from there on out. Being prepared to, like, say, I need to have an interpreter on site. It's going to take time, yes, but awareness on that is just slowly getting there. And we're, we're hoping at one point in a perfect world, everybody will be like, we have it ready to go. But compared to 20 or 30 years ago, this was a struggle. A lot of the deaf community were getting handcuffed in the back, and then it would be one charge added on to another because they seem like they're resisting arrest. And then it seems like they are more aggressive and violent when really was just trying to communicate like a hearing person would be just talking. And... It's like having a hearing person muffled and their mouth covered up. How would they feel if they can't utilize and talk at all when they were arrested? Not that you have to understand it. It's just a way for us to express, like, a frustration that happened at that moment. I mean, I, I'm sure a hearing person talked to themselves like, why did you do this? I, I should have made better choices. There, a deaf person does the same thing. 
a deaf person will tell themselves like, oh man, I, I shouldn't have done that. But when their hands are behind their back, people ask me, do deaf people have voices in their head? They talk to themselves. I can't speak for that for everyone. Okay. That is like it, unique for everyone. My brother does not have that. In order for him to carry that out, he's signed to himself for that to happen. So if anything was to happen to him in that situation, how can he sign to himself and have that inner voice to himself if his hands are behind his back? Let's talk about a general understanding or what some of the top things when it comes to the general public, what they could better understand about deaf people and how they could perhaps integrate better. We don't have interpreters that are there as family members. They are there as a job. We don't have them everywhere we go. We are fully capable of doing things that anybody would be able to do. At the same time, it's taught to us like a human being. That's the biggest thing. Don't sympathize us. Don't feel sorry. I, a lot of it, it's not your fault to begin with. We're deaf, and we take pride in that. Uh, it's who we are as a person. And with interpreters here, it's, they're there not just for me. They're there for you, too. Because think about it. If I was here today and I was not going to talk and I was signing, I had my interpreter to talk for me, would you be able to have this kind of conversation, that kind of uh, information on the radio today without the interpreter? You probably wouldn't. So the interpreter is there for you, too, for this specific moment. And I think understanding that the inter we are not always the one that needs the interpreter. It's also the hearing person, too, to understand what we want to say. And that's the biggest thing I'm trying to do and what we're trying to do at PeopleLink and the community is just get out there and say, the interpreter is building that bridge. You're building that bridge. I'm building that bridge together. And really, the communication aspect is much more accessible than us not being able to understand each other and we're frustrated. And also, just to add to it, maybe a little humor, I'd probably be shouting at you right now if we didn't have an interpreter, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, people would not, people think screaming over a person, over enunciating would help. Really? Well, first, we're deaf. Uh, <laughs> you're doing, you're just damaging your voice, maybe, at, at that point. It's, it's really just being aware. Eye contact is big. Um, maybe talk normally, but be aware that we might ask you to repeat a few times. And don't feel offended by it. We don't bite. <laughs> uh, being deaf, it really, we don't look at it as a disability, but it is a hidden disability. You can't see it. Unless you see a person with a hearing aid and cochlear implant and all that. But if I was alone at the store and I didn't have my hearing aid and you started talking, we're not ignoring you on purpose. The person may not be able to hear you. So don't take it as an offense that, oh, wow, this person is, like, not very friendly. For years, it took us to build the whole bridge. We tried to, like, make sure we're making it work. We were trying to encourage people help us build that other part of the bridge. Don't help us do things for us, but help us be that ally and say, what can we do to make this better? With that language, uh, ask us that it's making that move. 
it, it making that move like they're providing information back instead of uh, chasing down those information and like fighting for every single thing to get access to those resources. You were talking about how the deaf community was trying to build the whole bridge and you're looking and hoping that that's going to continue to change. I don't necessarily need you to talk about the city of Buffalo, but what about other communities, other governments, municipalities? Are they also doing their part to help build that bridge? I think the first thing we need to look at is people don't know what they don't know. That's the biggest thing. It's easy for us in the community to be frustrated. It's like enough is enough. This is the 21st century. It's 2024. But we try to come in and educate. We try to come in and be positive. I always look at it like if their respond back is, well, it costs money. It costs this. You have all of these fancy technologies, those nice cameras, those nice podiums, nice TV background. You're focused on that and not focused on the people. Then I'm trying to figure out what's your real role, what's your goal in what you're doing. If your goal is for the people, trying to make sure everyone is safe, having access, getting information, then that is the answer, Getting having things ready to go on hand, interpreters. Then the next thing is all of this other stuff with the looks. Hmm. I think... COVID made a big impact, but it scaled back. COVID with governors in every state. Unfortunately, New York was the last one to actually have an interpreter on that. New York was the last. Yes. New York State. New York State. It not last, second last. And that is for sure. And it is unfortunate on that case because by New York State, we are the largest deaf community by population per capita. So because New York City, you have Rochester, I mean, it's a lot of deaf people within the state itself. With getting that information, people think, well, captioning is good enough. It's not. Now it goes back into there are people in rural areas. How are they getting information? Internet assets, though you put interpreter onto the internet, only, or oh, we'll embed it in like half an hour or an hour later. What happens, they don't have access to the internet, but they only have access to cable, which is that. We need information. When COVID started to die down a little, even if it's still around, there are emergency situations that's happening, but interpreters are not being requested because they feel like this is not as much of an emergency as COVID. Should not be happening. Again, the question that should be asked is, is this for your position? Are you for the people? Those information getting out there, what is your message? That needs to be realized first. And then having those things, a checklist, all of those media, asset, job. Have all of these things, do we have it? Do we have this? We have this, yes, yes, yes. Did we request an interpreter? That should be on that list. It should become like a, a norm for everyone. And slowly we're getting there. Fast enough? I'm not sure. But is it better than 20 years ago? Yes. 
But again, Rome was not built in a day. <laughs> it took years to get to where it was. We're getting there. It should, we hope, put two steps forward and one step back instead of one step forward and two steps back. You know, David, we're out of time. And it's unfortunate because I did want you to tell uh, our listening audience the stories about the, the where both the football huddle and the <laughs> balls and strikes from umpires uh, originated, but it originated from needs from the deaf community, right? We'll definitely be, I'll definitely be happy to be back <laughs> if you have any more of other uh, thoughts. I have a lot of stories to share and I'll be happy to share those. I appreciate you sharing the stories you did today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. David Wantuck is the director of People Inc.'s Deaf Access Services Program. We appreciate him being with us today. And this is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.